Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome into our latest installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. As always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. Tina, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Joe? Doing well, doing well, along with Rich Lenkoff of Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich, great to see you as always. Hello, Joe. <laughs> we start off with an abortion case, which is challenging Roe versus Wade up at the Supreme Court. Quite the guest list we have today. We start with Dean Irwin Chimerinsky of Berkeley Law and friend of the podcast. He's also taught at the University of California, Irvine, Duke and USC, as well as authoring 14 books and more than 200 law review articles. Dean, thank you so much for being here. It's always a pleasure. And Jennifer Welch, president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Illinois, former policy director as well for Illinois Attorney General Lisa Madigan. Jennifer, thank you so much for being here as well. Thank you for having me. So, Dean, let's start with you, and maybe if you could explain to our listeners, uh, there are several possible outcomes to the Dobbs decision once it's rendered. What what are some of the possible outcomes to this case? Of course, this involves a Mississippi law that prohibits abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. In Roe v. Wade in 1973 and Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992, the Supreme Court said states cannot prohibit abortions prior to viability, which is about the 24th week of pregnancy. So there's really three things the Supreme Court might do. One is follow precedent and strike down the Mississippi law. A second possibility would be to uphold the Mississippi law and say states can prohibit abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy, but leave open the question whether the states can prohibit abortions even earlier than that, like the Texas law that does at the sixth week of pregnancy or the Alabama law that does at the moment of conception. Or the third possibility is the Supreme Court could flat out overrule Roe versus Wade, obviously then uphold the Mississippi law, but make it clear that states can prohibit abortions however they choose, including from the moment of conception. The following is a question I would like to actually direct to both of you. Um, let's start with Jennifer. Were you surprised by the seeming willingness of the conservative justices, particularly of the Trump appointees, to openly question whether both Roe and Casey should be overturned? Tina, I wasn't really. I think that this is the moment that I've been afraid of since the previous president put three arch conservatives on the Supreme Court and very young folks as well. So we've got these people staring our law for a generation to come or possibly more. So I wasn't surprised. Right now, I alternate between furious and terrified. Surprise isn't one of them, though. Dean, what are your thoughts? Jennifer said it perfectly. Once Donald Trump was elected and he promised to appoint justice committed over ruling over Swade, and once he got to pick three justices for the court, there's nothing surprising that we have a majority that's poised over Roe versus Wade. I was a bit surprised that justices Kavanaugh and Barrett were so clear that they're ready to overrule Roe. I was surprised that Chief Justice Roberts was so clear that he would uphold the Mississippi law, but perhaps not want to express an opinion about laws that prohibit abortion earlier. Usually justices 
hold their cards closer to the vest in oral argument. There was no doubt after Dobbs last week that there's six justices to uphold the Mississippi law. Dean, Justice Kavanaugh uh, talked about uh, basically saying, you know, why not overturn bad precedent? We've done that before. Of course, this is different. This is viewed as, you know, most people as far different. How is this precedent different and why should it be treated differently as other Supreme Court precedent that has been overturned? To start with, because Roe versus Wade was rightly decided. The Supreme Court has said for a century that the word liberty in the due process clause protects fundamental aspects of privacy and autonomy. The court under this has picked the right to marry, the right to procreate, the right to custody of one's children, the right to keep the family together, the right of parents to control the upbringing of their children, the right to purchase and use contraceptives, the right of consenting adults to engage in same-sex sexual activity, the right of competent adults to refuse medical care. Roe versus Wade is a part of all of those decisions. It's very much part of the Supreme Court using liberty to protect fundamental rights. And second, we've got to remember here is that for almost 50 years, women have known that they have the right to abortion as a backstop. If they're raped, if there's contraceptive failure, if there's an unwanted pregnancy for any reason. And the Supreme Court's about to pull that out from under the rights of American women. Jennifer, let's pick up on that point, because I think it's a very strong one. And, and you know, the words of Justice Sotomayor, I think, uh, were very poignant in this case when she said, I want to make sure I quote her correctly, because she was very deliberate in her wording. Right. I mean, there's no mistaking what she said. She said, will this institution survive the stench? And that's a very, very conscious use of that term that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts. I don't see how that is possible. What are your thoughts? I mean, there's no question that abortion cases are always going to be inextricably linked with politics, right? But this is taking it to a, uh, a whole other extreme, I think. What are your thoughts on her comments? And if, in fact, Roe and Casey are overturned, what that means for the intersection of politics and law going forward? Well, I have to agree with the dean here that... I believe the legitimacy of the court is at risk if they ignore half a century of law that has made abortion legal and accessible in our country. And as the dean mentioned, a century of law that has focused on personal liberty. So it really does run the risk of of increasingly politicizing the Supreme Court in a way that I hope the court is reluctant to do. And perhaps the chief justice, most importantly, shouldn't be reluctant to do. I don't think that he should have a legacy. I don't believe that he would want a legacy of delegitimizing the Supreme Court. Dean, what are your thoughts on that? A Gallup poll at the end of September showed that the Supreme Court has the lowest approval ratings in its history. There's a 40 percent approval rating and 53 percent disapproving. Every opinion poll shows that about two thirds of the American people do not want Roe versus Wade to be overruled. There's one and only one reason why Dobbs is even on the Supreme Court's docket this year, and that's that Donald Trump appointed three justices committed to overruling Roe. I think overruling Roe would be an enormous blow to the Supreme Court's legitimacy. But I also think in terms of your specific question, the political consequences, it will make abortion the most salient and important political issue in state and local, in federal elections, in judicial elections, in so many states across the country. Because now abortions can be left to city councils and state legislatures and state judges and perhaps members of Congress. It is going to 
make it the dominant political question for elections to come. Dean, can you explain to our listeners? I know this is a complicated issue, but I think you know it's it's very confusing sometimes to listeners to understand the perspective that even though the Constitution, and of course some of the conservative justices, you know, raise this, even though the Constitution doesn't say the words that a woman has the right to a privacy, to right to privacy, or to end their pregnancy, that that is a constitutionally protected right. Why is that a right if it doesn't say those words in the actual text of this document? The Constitution is written in very broad, open-ended language. Courts have always had to give meaning to that language. Take, for example, freedom of association. It's not mentioned in the Constitution. But just last year, the six conservative justices struck down a California law because disclosure of donations might chill freedom of association. I gave you a list a moment ago of so many rights that the court has protected, even though they're not mentioned in the Constitution. Before Roe came down, the court said there's a fundamental right to purchase and use contraceptives. And two decades before that, the Supreme Court said there's a fundamental right to procreate. We take these rights for granted, but they're not mentioned in the Constitution either. So, Jennifer, how is Illinois preparing for a post-Roe world? Uh, that's a great question, Tina, because every state that touches Illinois' borders has more restrictions on abortion already. And if the Supreme Court does either overturn Roe outright or allow the Mississippi case, the Mississippi law to stand and diminish Roe, we can anticipate that our neighbor states will add even more barriers to accessing abortion. Dean, what are your thoughts on what the country looks like outside of Illinois, across the rest of the country? What does it look like after Roe? Assuming the Supreme Court overrules Roe, the issue will be left to state legislatures. It's estimated that between 25 and 30 states will prohibit all or virtually all abortions. Many states have laws on the books that will be triggered and go automatically into effect if Roe is overruled. Now, in places like California, in New York, and I hope Illinois, abortion will remain legal. Women who have resources will travel to places like California, New York, and Illinois for abortions. Before New York became the first state in this country to legalize abortion, a quarter of all the abortions in England were performed on American women. It wasn't poor women who were traveling to England for abortions. So it's poor women and teenagers who don't have the resources to travel to a place where abortion is legal, who will again face the cruel choice to an unsafe back alley abortion and an unwanted child. And again, that's Dean Erwin Chemerinsky of Berkeley Law. Dean, thank you so much for the insight today. And Jennifer Welch, President and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Illinois. Jennifer, thank you very much for joining us as well. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. 
In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. As we continue on the Legal Faceoff podcast, we move to the topic of Vanessa Bryant suing L.A. County for sharing images of the helicopter crash that killed her daughter Gianna and husband Kobe. For insight, we bring in Alfonso Estrada, an experienced labor and employment attorney, also a partner at Hanson Bridget. Alfonso, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you all for having me. really appreciate it. So Alfonso, as Joe mentioned, it's been nearly two years now since the tragic helicopter crash that killed Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gigi and seven others. And Vanessa Bryant has sued LA County in connection with its handling of pictures associated with the crash. Can you please give us a little bit more detail and color about her cause of action and tell us what's the latest with this case? Sure. Uh, She initially filed her complaint uh, in state court in September of 2020. Uh, In it, she alleges various allegations of invasion of privacy, intentional infliction of emotional distress. And basically, the the kind of overarching theory through the causes of action is that these graphic, horrible photos about her uh, family members and the others involved in the crash were disseminated uh, publicly to some extent. Um, inappropriately, in contravention of the uh, department's policies and procedures, um, and you know, therefore, she's been aggrieved. Um, so that's the general theory of the causes of action of her, of her lawsuit. Obviously, there's more complexity to it than that, but that's a good overview. Yeah, Alfonso, what's LA County's position on the case? Um, their position on the case um, is that, uh, to a certain extent, uh, these photographs were not released publicly in the media didn't make it to like a TMZ website or anything like that. Therefore, it cannot be said that they were disseminated publicly. Um, so, you know, there, there is an argument there uh, to be made by the county. They've certainly made it. Um, and it's been pretty contentious litigation leading up to the motion for summary judgment, which will be heard at the end of this month. How likely do you think it is, given the circumstances, that it's, this case is going to be disposed of prior to the trial that's set for February? Um, I would say because it was uh, removed by the county's counsel to federal court, um, I would say the likelihood of, of a motion for summary, uh, a motion for summary judgment being granted, um, the likelihood of that is higher than it would be in state court, just given my own personal experience. Um, I feel federal judges, uh, you know, they have lifetime tenure and they're more uh, ready and able to pull the trigger on a motion for summary judgment than a state court necessarily would be or a state judge. Um, so, so we'll see. Um, you know, it is going to be a big decision uh, by the federal judge. And a lot of it is, you know, because of who it involves, Vanessa Bryant, um, you know, and the Bryant family here in L.A. are thought of as like royalty. Um, so it, it, it's going to be very interesting to see how it, it turns out. And yeah, my, my interest in the case is because I was a diehard Kobe Bryant fan and I love the Bryants. And it was horrible uh, when all that went down. So. Um, and it, it intersects with what I do for a living. So I've remained uh, you know, keenly aware of what's going on. So, you know, Vanessa Bryant has been very public in stating that she suffered damages and will continue to suffer damages in the future. I think her quote was that uh, these deputies and firefighters 
took the worst thing that's ever happened to me and made it worse. Um, and she said that forever she'll live in fear of these helicopter crash photos going viral. How much do you think that'll connect if this case goes to trial with a jury? I think most people would understand that. On the other hand, I think a lot of jurors might think, well, it's horrible, of course, but we've seen other examples of celebrities' privacy being violated, and that might go with the territory. Of course, this is an egregious example. And also, monetarily, some jurors might think, well, Vanessa Bryant doesn't really need the additional money that she's seeking. Um, that's, a, that's a great question, Rich. Um, I think, um, you know, in spite of the fact that, you know, Vanessa Bryant's already taken care of for the rest of her life, um, you know, and I'm, I'm presuming that, uh, but it seems to be the case. Um, I think it would resonate, you know, with the jury, especially here in Los Angeles, um, just given who it involved, given the fact that her husband and daughter died in this, you know, horrific uh, accident. Um, uh, so I think, uh, I think the county has a serious vested interest in getting this thing resolved before it ever gets to jury trial in February of next year. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, in, in spite of the fact that um, sure, there have been other cases that are probably worse. People you know, might have suffered more um, horrific uh, tragedy. But this idea that these photographs could at some point become public, um, you know, I, I think there is some merit to that. And, and the you know, damages that she's claiming in that regard. And another takeaway is um, from the deposition snippets that I've seen, um, it doesn't to me, it appears to be more of a personal um, you know, issue for her than necessarily a monetary issue for her. Um, so that part to me is also another fascinating thing about this particular piece of litigation. So Alfonso, in these sorts of situations, especially when a horrible tragedy happens, there's always this desire and need to hold people accountable. And Vanessa has actually reached out of court settlements with some of the other players in this case. Do you think, who do you think ultimately should be held accountable for what happened. And is LA County really among the parties that one in these sorts of circumstances would ordinarily think should be held accountable? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a tricky question, right, Tina? Because, um, I mean, the County of LA, when people sue the County of LA, they think of it as like the deep pockets, right? Because they have all of this money that a certain individual wouldn't. Certainly the deputies involved with the potential misconduct or even the fire employees involved won't have the same kind of deep pockets. Um, so I think that's one factor, uh, certainly why the county, you know, has not been settled with. Um, uh, and another thing, though, on the flip side of that coin is um, the way you show accountability in lawsuits is through money, right? Like if, if somebody engages in some egregious act against somebody else, um, the way that you make an example of them is you take them to trial and you make them pay. Um, so, you know, I think there's there's a bit of that going on here as well. Again, that's Alfonso Estrada of Hanson and Bridget. Alfonso, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you all. Really appreciated it. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. 
Moving along in the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio, and a lot of controversy after Alec Baldwin's TV appearance regarding the death that took place on the set of Rust. With that, we have co-founder and managing partner of Zweibach, Fizet, and Coleman, Rachel Fizet. She's also clerked for Consuelo B. Marshall, Chief Judge of the Central District of California. Rachel, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. So, Rachel, why don't we jump right into it? Last week was this interview that Alec Baldwin did he decided to start talking about what happened from his frame of reference. Do you think it was a good idea for him to be willing to do this interview? No, it is never a good idea to speak publicly during an active criminal investigation. It is a questionable idea to do so during any kind of civil suit. So absolutely not a good idea from a legal perspective. Now, I do think he had other motivations as it relates to his public image, possibly working again. It's very difficult for celebrities not to speak directly to the public because they are so used to doing so. So in the case when you're managing a legal team for a celebrity, these things can be more difficult. They're more nuanced. You have people that are just more used to reaching out directly, but in general, do I think he did himself any favors as it relates to his legal issues? Absolutely not. Now, let's talk about that for, for a second. I mean, that's because obviously some of the admissions that he may have made, even though he didn't realize he was making them, can, of course, be used. Right. I mean, there's no sort of constitutional protection that applies to interviews with uh, George Stephanopoulos. <laughs> Absolutely no protection. And I think he inadvertently made a lot of admissions that could come up later. Like, like what was what would one be that you thought you heard during this interview that might hurt him in front of a jury? Well, he said someone is to blame. I think that's a huge admission. Someone is to blame, even though he was careful to say and deflect blame from himself. Someone is to blame, but not me. Well, he is a producer on this movie. So should it come back that someone is to blame for some kind of negligence at a higher up level for supervising this scene, for supervising the movie, and that person be determined to be him, um, he could be to blame. That's such an important point, you know, because I do a lot of civil work and I do a lot of jury trials. And what jurors are looking for, unfortunately, is to place the blame on someone and with a high profile defendant. And he, by again, as you said, by his admission, there's, you know, there's some blame to go around. That's a real problem. What he should have said is accidents happen. It doesn't necessarily mean that someone, some individual is liable. That would have been, if, if he said anything, that would have been something to say. But I, I totally agree with your point. And he keeps saying it's a one in a billion chance for this to happen. Even those kinds of little admissions along the way that he made at the side of the road, then he said it again in the interview. Well, one in a billion means something probably went very wrong. And that's, that, to me, supports a, a finding of negligence. Now, whether it's to a criminal standard or a civil standard is yet to be determined. But those kinds of little admissions where he really thinks he is deflecting blame and deflecting what happened um, away from himself and away from something that could be attributed to him, I, I think those all could come back to him. So, Rachel, how do you think, you know, he's a celebrity. I think some people like him, some people hate him. 
How do you think him portraying himself as a victim here is going to be perceived by jurors? That's a tough call. I mean, I think in the aftermath, people have had both reactions to it, that he was very sympathetic. Um, There is no question in my mind that he is sorry this happened. He is definitely suffering trauma from the event. I mean, there's to me, there's no question this was an accident. This was not an intentional act. He is very sorry. And in those kinds of ways, he came off, I think, somewhat sympathetic. But then, you know, the next scene or the, you know, the next portion of the interview, he does appear very much to be deflecting blame that he's a victim. I hated that he talked about how she told him to point the gun. Um, I felt like that was just a really uh, that that would really kind of felt gut wrenching that he was almost blaming her um, for the shot she wanted. And then, you know, what happened to her. So I think those kinds of things. It, it, depending maybe on how you're biased coming in against him or not, really those could make a juror feel uh, that he did something wrong, that he's not, that he's coming across poorly. Yeah, that was really poorly done by him when, you know, Stephanopoulos asked him, well, why would you point it? You know, the standard is don't point it at anyone. He said, unless the DP is telling you to. I mean, what a, not a very smart thing to say. Um, What do you think of the news that came out yesterday from the father of the armorist who threw out this sabotage theory, this conspiracy theory that we've heard from others, but he formally put it out there saying that he has actual affirmative evidence that she did everything properly, but there is some sabotage involved. And I think what they're saying also is that the the some of the members of the set were involved, some of the crew, because of the disputes they had with housing and some other issues they had. Seems pretty far-fetched. Yeah, they continue to put out this theory. I think that the prosecutor has already stated she is not into this theory, that this is probably not going to get them anywhere. This kind of far-fetched deflection is not the way I would go. I mean, they're trying to raise reasonable doubt in the public's eye, but at the same time, while there's charging decisions to be made, they might be uh, making the prosecutor actually angrier with these kinds of theories, which might motivate her to charge. I mean, we're still in the pre-charging investigation. So this is the point where probably you're, you know, usually your best instinct here would be to lay low, um, field some defenses, but putting things that are far-fetched out into the public might just rub her the wrong way. Again, that's Rachel Fizet, co-founder and managing partner of Zweibach, Fizet, and Coleman. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy. 
and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka, and Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas, starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey & Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. It's time to get to the holiday season of the Legal Grab Bag here on a Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. Our first guest is a subject matter expert of CureLink Healthcare. She's also got a background in the legal world, formally identifying legal talent in the Chicagoland area. It's Katie Malasina. Katie, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Apparently, I'm here as a social media sensation, according to Rich. So uh, happy to fill that that title and duty here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to hold you to that for sure. Uh, along with Jack Vrett, partner of Honigman and veteran of the U.S. Army, Judge Advocate General Corps. Jack, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. And I think that my attendance was an oversight. <laughs> also an Instagram sensation in his own right, Jack, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Once I download it, right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Rich, we start off with uh, the Jesse Smollett closing arguments being underway as the former Empire actor continues to claim that he did not stage a fake attack. I got to give credit right off the bat to I'm staying at my friend Scott Preston, who's a prior legal face off guest, right, on the show, um, fellow law school alum. I got to give him credit for just reminding me how preposterous this whole defense is, right? How this whole hoax that Justice Millett is trying to throw on the wall, particularly the idea that, what was the line against Scott? Do you remember it? Let's go. I said to Rich yesterday in the car, if I look back at all the people I've dealt with, and I've never been beat up, but if I look back at the people who might have beat me up, none of them were the people I wrote a check to the week before. Boom, right there. That's not the group of people gunning me down. Right. I mean, think of all all the crazy theories he's put forth. And remember, you don't have to testify as a defendant. In fact, you usually don't, right? I mean, the, the point, and this is a textbook example of why as a defense lawyer in a criminal case, you don't put your witness on the stand. You don't put your client because he's going to say stupid things. In fact, not only did Smollett not help his case by opening his mouth, he heard it, right? Because he actually added things to the record that otherwise would not have been known. All this drug use and the cocaine use and the marijuana, if he just shut his mouth, the jury would have known most of that. So, you know, we talked earlier about the idea of putting everything out there, the armorist and the, you know, Alec Baldwin shooting, putting everything out there, the sabotage theory, trying to create reasonable doubt. That's what Smollett is doing here, right? Throwing out every possible theory, trying to, you know, find that one juror who will create reasonable doubt. But in doing so, I don't think he was effective at all. There's not one reasonable person, I believe, in that jury who's going to think that anything he's saying is reasonable, credible, believable at all. So I think he's done. I don't think the jury's going to be out for very long once closing is done. Tina? I'd be shocked. I would be totally shocked if they're out for more than an hour or two. I, I really yeah. would be. And, you know, the cross-examination was exactly what you would have expected it to be. He was completely discredited. 
um, as a witness for himself. And I mean, just the, the, the story he spun, even if you didn't have all the other context that he himself created, starting with this whole thing two years ago, would have been pretty preposterous. But when you compare it against what his story was and how it's changed and he evolved over time, I mean, it, it is just preposterous. Katie, one thing we learned from Smollett was that he was earning by the end of the run, and he was on Empire for a few years, mm-hmm. his contract was paying $100,000 per episode for 18 episodes. Okay. By my rudimentary math, that's, you know, what, $25 trillion or something. Probably enough money to order Uber Eats if you're hungry in the middle of the night, not be wandering around downtown frigid Chicago looking for a subway or looking for eggs. I mean, come on. I mean, to, not to be like funny, but $3,500 doesn't even seem like nearly enough for something like this. Like he ripped these guys off. <laughs> like that's to, to, to risk all of this. And he paid them out 3,500. That, that's insane to me. Um, obviously there's no amount of money that should encourage that, but like, there's so many bits of the story that are just so insane. Like why wouldn't he want security to follow him home? Um, you know, he's so threatened by this hate mail that he got and he, he referred to security taking him home as invasive. Um, and he just, he also completely did not cooperate with the police. He wouldn't give them, you know, his phone. And I, I just think it's, a, it's just a joke. I'm excited to see what comes out of this. And Jack, you know, it's always a bad sign when Justice Millett, as he did yesterday, turns to the judge for help, right? And the judge responded saying, listen, the rules are you have to answer the question, believe it or not. Also, it's always a bad sign when the attorneys, his defense attorneys, were attacking the judge. There was an allegation earlier on in the trial that the judge lunged at one of the attorneys and they called for a mistrial. I mean, every possible way to focus attention away from the core of this case, which is complete nonsense. Right, right. It's it's a shame, you know, given how many trials are publicized. You can watch the video live these days over the last several months. It's a shame this one isn't because this one would just be a riot to watch. Um, Absolutely. Sure. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the one hand trying to play the ref like that and make, make the attorney into the story seems a little bit bizarre. Um, and it's also it's a shame that we couldn't see Dan Webb in action. You know, um, this 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 stalwart seasoned prosecutor that we can all learn from. Um, and but from the reporting, it sounds like it, he devastated Jesse Smollett, except doesn't uh, you know, know the Instagram so well. Smollett accused him of not knowing uh, much about the Instagram. Well, as I said, I also don't have an Instagram account that I actively use. So I think that we should give him a pass for that one. But uh, it, uh, we'll see what happens for this for, with, the, with the outcome of this. But I agree. I think that the jury will not be out for very long. Um, I think he didn't do himself any favors. When I was a prosecutor in the Army, I remember a lot of folks would say, you know, what happens if they get up there and lie? You know, if the defendant gets up there and lie. And I can tell you that seasoned prosecutors, that's, that's a dream come true, right? Because you have them up there and you can just needle them and take every little thing out of uh, uh, out of their mouth and use it against them, which is why Jesse was uh, asking for assistance from the judge. He didn't want to answer the yes or no questions. So it, uh, I look forward to the movie on this one for sure. Well, speaking of movies, it's like you ever see the movie Class Action? It's one of the great legal thrillers of all time, Gene Hackman. And he says early in the film, you know, you got him when they do this, when they start doing this to their collar. And of course, sure enough, in the, in the key part of cross-examination, Hackman's going after one of them. The guy does one of these. Oh, God. (laughs) Moving on, Tina. After the deadly school shootings, Michigan prosecutors are criticizing school officials now. Yeah, so it's hard to believe that it's been a week since the horrific mass shooting in Michigan that left four students dead and six injured. 
There's been a lot of activity. This is a quickly evolving story. 15-year-old Ethan Crumley, who was a student at the school, opened fire. And what we've come to learn since then is that hours before the shooting, there was a meeting that Crumley had with his parents and with school counselors. He had apparently left a drawing on his desk um, that showed a bullet and had written on it, blood everywhere. Um, clearly, there were concerns about the possibility that he was going to do something destructive. Um, and so the school and school administrators had a meeting with him and his parents. Um, they allowed him to go back to class, even though the counselors had encouraged and actually had requested that his parents take him home. What we've come to learn is that his parents were, um, were charged this weekend with involuntary manslaughter. And the reason being that at that meeting, they didn't disclose that he had access to a nine millimeter semi-automatic pistol, which his own father had purchased for him as an early Christmas present on Black Friday. Um, it's illegal under Michigan law unless it's used for hunting under the supervision of an adult. Um, parents refused to take him home. And then within a very short period of time later is when he started shooting. So the concern here obviously is that his parents obviously en enabled him by buying him a gun. They refused to bring him home after what clearly seemed to be a troubling conversation about their son. School officials didn't do anything in terms of disagreeing with the parents or calling the police or having them insisting that they bring him home. So the prosecutor that's in charge of this case in Michigan is saying that, you know, they're looking into whether school officials should be charged given these rather egregious circumstances, Rich. Yeah, I mean, it's fairly unprecedented uh, prosecu prosecutorial action here by charging parents. We've never seen parents in the school shooting charged before. Here's why in this case, it's the right charge, in my opinion. I'm not sure if it'll stick if they will be found guilty, but Three reasons. You mentioned one of them. Um, you know, uh, the fact that when faced with this knowledge that he did these drawings and he was called into school, they did nothing. Secondly, uh, they bought him a gun. They bought a 15 year old kid a gun, which is illegal. Storing the gun is not uh, not storing the gun is not illegal. But buying a straw gun, a straw purchase for a 15 year old is illegal. And also this LOL text that the mother sent to the kid, you know, LOL. That's you shouldn't get caught is nuts. So I think the difference here, Jack, you're a former prosecutor, is not just actual omission, which you often see in school shooting cases by parents, but actual affirmative acts that warrant these charges, in my opinion. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting. I think there's also some reporting that they're looking at potentially charging some school officials with a crime. I wonder if that's a bridge too far. Um, that if that's something that would, would more be a, a civil liability, whether they they uh, fulfilled their obligations to the other kids. Uh, but I agree with you that there, the evidence that we have right now in the media suggests that there was uh, some criminal wrongdoing on behalf of the parents. And Katie, to the prosecutor's credit, you know, I think she's trying to prove a point, right? I mean, Jack will tell you that frequently in prosecutions, what you're trying to do is send a message of deterrence to okay. others who might act this way in the future. Even if this case doesn't prove successful, maybe the next parent who sends a stupid text like this thinks again, or maybe the next parent doesn't leave a gun out or buy a gun in the first place for a 15 year old. Well, yeah. And I think the most shocking part of the entire story and article was that 
they described the, the kid, the shooter as calm during this meeting. And I'm like, any intelligent person who is in a position, who's a, a school counselor should know that somebody behaving calm under these sort of circumstances, like obviously has like sociopathic tendencies. If I was in that, you know, I would never be in that case, but if I was, I would be freaking out there. I would be in anything but calm. Um, and I just think it's crazy that the, that the counselor still allowed the parents to make the executive decision to keep the kid in school. That should have been a, no, you're leaving. You need to seek, you know, mental health treatment. And until somebody who is a professional clears you to come back, you got to stay away from here because they have to protect the safety of the school community. Absolutely. Especially when you consider there are so many other decisions that school officials make on a regular basis of sending the kids home or denying their access to the practice or the the, whatever it might be that are of such lower severity than something like this. I used to get sent home for wearing the wrong jeans to school or pants. I mean, come on. And remember, legally, the school stands in the role of in loco parentis. That's a term that means they're standing in place of the parents. They have a duty to take care, not just of that child, but other students under their watch. Yep. That is an interesting side to look at. I mean, absolutely. Uh, Moving on, Tina, Chris Cuomo is planning on suing CNN and he's looking for a big return. Yeah. So the theme of this show has been watching people unravel and Chris Cuomo is no exception. So his saga started a couple of weeks ago when details emerged that he had breached his journalistic standards by providing his brother, who is the former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo's aides with information regarding the allegations of sexual harassment that were lodged against Governor Governor Cuomo and otherwise aiding in his brother's defense. So news broke this weekend that CNN fired Chris Cuomo effective immediately as new details emerged regarding the allegations of sexual misconduct by one of Chris Cuomo's former ABC colleagues. Um, Chris Cuomo also shortly thereafter, after that news broke, um, had come public and said that his Sirius XM radio show was going to be um, taken off the air as well. So the fireworks this week um, between Chris Cuomo and CNN emerged when Chris Cuomo threatened to file suit against CNN if they were not going to make good on his existing contract. I believe there were several years left under his existing contract. He threatened to sue, I think, for $18 million if they wouldn't make good on it. He also said that CNN President Jeff Zucker, who's getting ready to step down at the end of the year, Chris Cuomo claims that he knew all along what was going on and how Chris Cuomo was aiding his brother with respect to getting him information and providing strategy on his case. Um, Zucker had a press conference yesterday and said that um, Cuomo is not going to get a penny under his existing contract and that Cuomo is just a liar. So clearly the sparks are flying here. Zucker completely denied knowing anything with respect to what Cuomo was up to and said that he's you know put CNN in a tough position and he compromised his journalistic integrity. So it's going to be interesting to see how this one plays out. It's it's really a tough spot for Cuomo to be in, but he put himself in that position. So we've we, we've seen similar situations before, not necessarily the same facts, but Matt Lauer is another great example that came to mind when I saw this go down over the last few days, Rich. It's the oldest playbook out there. I mean, go on the offensive when you're the uh, when you're being accused of some pretty horrific uh, facts. Um, 
So we saw that recently, Joe, we talked about that recently with uh, John Gruden, right? John Gruden was fired by the Raiders for some incredibly offensive emails. Now he's suing the organization in the NFL for leaking that information. Similarly here, you know, Cuomo's going to attack. Nothing surprising there. A couple of another takeaway, though, interestingly, talking about Smollett is, you know, uh, they seem to have a problem with their anchors because Don Lemon also texted Jesse Smollett uh, the night he was arrested and said, he gave them some information from one of his sources about the police. So I watch CNN. I also watch Fox all the time. CNN's got a bit of a credibility problem here with some of their anchors, I think. Katie, what's your take on uh, on Cuomo? Do you have any sympathy for him here at all? I mean, no. And and also this really reminds me of the show, The, Mor- the, the Morning Show. It's with Jennifer Aniston, um, yes. Reese Witherspoon. Like as soon as I saw this, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so similar to that. Um, I mean, it's like, breaching his contract did he breach it when he was you know helping his brother did he breach it because he did you know have he did perform sexual harassment or whatever the case was against his colleague or whatever that i mean it it just depends on if there's proof i mean do they have proof that he did that um but i don't think i don't think cnn is wrong for not granting him the rest of what he's supposed to be paid out it's just i mean it's ridiculous After the House of Cards had fallen, Kevin Spacey and his production companies are looking at a big payment to the studio, Rich. Look at that segue. Love that segue. (laughs) It was due for one. Uh, That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, listen, these stories are all very similar. Again, we talked about going on the offensive. Kevin Spacey, now uh, it's been ruled that he has to repay a huge amount of money for this history of sexual harassment and other activities, in fact, right out sexual assault. Um, and, you know, Kevin Spacey was the star of the show. So I think rightfully so, the producers went after him saying, uh, you owe us damages for all of, you know, the, the fact that the show was canceled abruptly. Remember, he was signed to continue on House of Cards. They had to uh, quickly reboot it and put, um, you know, his, his wife on the show as the centerpiece of the show. That causes damages and a court ruled uh, in the producer's favor, Tina. Yeah, no, I mean, it's this is, you know, again, the theme of this show is watching the undoing of many prominent people. Um, I mean, it's just I mean, it's we knew several years ago that this was happening, but it seems like the more the time goes on. Um, the more stories come out about people like Kevin Spacey. I mean, the whole notion of him sexually harassing people in general is awful, but then like children, I mean, they're essentially children. And um, I think in this case, the, the, the damages are justified because of everything that needed to be done to exit him from the show and to try to continue what was a huge enterprise. So, yeah. So now, he has to pay $31 million for breaching the steel. And I think it's a pattern of, you know, maybe celebrities not holding that lofty position um, as they may have, you know, used to it. I think studios were reluctant to file this kind of lawsuit in the past. We saw recently, of course, the famous Scarlett Johansson case uh, involving Disney. Um, and they went after Scarlett Johansson. She ended up winning, but I think the idea that you're a celebrity and you can avoid the terms of a contract are not um, maybe what it used to be. I agree. And I think it's probably better off for society if, if these kind of things continue, because it does seem like a lot of these people think that they're above the law and above accountability and responsibility for their actions. What reminded me was, you remember that very bizarre Christmas YouTube video that Kevin Spacey released a couple of so years strange. ago? 
so strange. And I went back and watched it because in that as in, in character. It, yeah, in character from House of House of Cards, right? From a character he, that he was fired from, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And he talks about that he's going to kill people with kindness, which, you know, it didn't work out for him here. And you see that uh, we're talking about Cuomo is the opposite, right? Go on the offensive as opposed to just uh, sitting there and, and, and trying to kill people with kindness. But what right. a bizarre story. Tina, try telling this headline to somebody 30 years ago and see if it makes any sense. Lulu Lemon says Peloton is a copycat. Yeah, no, and this may not make a lot of sense to people today. So I'm going to try to keep the story really simple. So this happens to be in my area of practice. But the saga began about five years ago when Peloton and Lulu Lemon, you know, as Peloton was starting to get a lot of traction, um, they wanted to offer apparel as part of their offering to people. And so they reached a co-branded partnership where Peloton would buy wholesale merchandise from Lululemon and then brand it with the Peloton logo. So fast forward five years, obviously each of these companies have evolved and Peloton has exploded. Um, This relationship has since ended and Peloton has launched its own apparel line, which got a lot of press, a lot of um, social media blitz over the last several months. So back last month, Lululemon sent a demand letter to Peloton threatening to file suit unless Peloton stopped selling a few key items in its offering, which included a number of sports bras and a few style of leggings, claiming that these particular articles of clothing um, not only um, were patent infringements of property of Lululemon, but also accused Peloton of trade dress infringement and unfair competition. So as potential defendants are wont to do, um, sometimes these defendants file for declaratory judgment in court. And that's what Peloton did in federal court in New York. And then Lululemon last week decided to sue Peloton with the actual um, claims of infringement in this complaint. Um, This is not something that's terribly surprising. We've seen Peloton is pretty litigious. Lululemon's litigious. When relationships like like these end, we sometimes see this happen. Partners one day, foes the next day, because there's a lot of money in these relationships. But what we also know is that cases, including patent infringement cases, can be very expensive. And so um, unless there's really millions of dollars in these two parties are really at opposite ends, I would imagine, Rich, that this is going to settle at some point. All I got to say is I'm Team Lulu forever. As a Canadian, as a very uh, proud Canadian and a huge fan of the brand, I'm wearing Lulu. I don't want to show you because it's down below, but, you know, I'm wearing Lululemons right now, as I do almost every day of my life. Uh, I am Team Lulu. They've convinced me that if I was on that jury, I would find for Lulu. Katie, uh, you got to be Team Lulu. Please tell me you are. I'm so team Lulu. I've never stepped on a Peloton in my life, Um, but I think people will pay the price for for both. And I just, I mean, how innovative though can you get with workout clothes? I think that there's a vast majority of other brands on Amazon, like private sellers, whatever the case might be that they're, they're making clothes exactly like Lululemon and they're, they're branding it as like an, an off, an off brand of Lululemon or like a dupe or whatever. And I don't see them taking action against, you know, all of these smaller organizations or whatever the case might be. I just think they used to be partners and this is just going to be a dispute that, that gets settled, you know, as, as you guys mentioned. So 
Jack, what are your thoughts on this? As I as I show you my loyalty to the brand, hang on. Right there, right there, you see it. Team it's a nice Lula. jacket. The, this is the official Team Canada Olympic jacket. Yeah, that. what team were you on, Rich? What's that? What team were you on? Hard to believe. And I, if only Lulu Lim would like throw some sponsorship money at us after all this free publicity. Um, but yeah, Jack, what are your thoughts on this story? Uh, my thoughts on this story are that uh, if anyone had seen me try to work out by getting on one of those bikes, you would recognize that I was never <laughs> coordinated at all as a child. <laughs> Rich, I'm with you. I, I just purchased a pair of uh, Lululemon slacks. They're like the half casual, semi-formal. I, I want to purge my entire wardrobe and just replace them with those things. They're, yeah, well, let, me, let me break it to you. The fact you call them slacks means you can never wear them again. You might as well, <laughs> you might as well turn them in, man. Well, the, the, the first uh, word that came to mind... I lemon, I forbid you from ever wearing them again. Well, I was about to say trousers, but luckily I... Uh, oh, yeah, that's, not good. that's not a good look either, the trousers. Just as bad. Just as bad. All right, all right. Apparently, fail. I need, epic uh, fail. Apparently, I need to uh, improve the way I live, uh, which is something that Elizabeth Holmes had some handwritten notes on that they have now entered the courtroom on the criminal fraud trail of her now defunct blood starting test up, Rich. You know, uh, yeah, we, we've talked about the Elizabeth Holmes trial before, and again, it's going to the jury pretty soon, but I can't get over this list. I mean, you know, lawyers are notoriously, you know, type A people, and we like lists for sure. Uh, but we're going to show you, thanks to our trusty producer, Yvonne, some of the daily routine that Elizabeth Holmes, that this came out during the trial, right? Um, again, you know, I consider myself uh, a creature of routine and a creature of heaven. I'd like to have certain things the same way. But this is nuts. I mean, the degree to which she writes down every minute of her day is, and you know, Elizabeth Holmes has been called a robot before, right? So 4 a.m., rise and thank God. Most things are not logical, okay? So you give herself 15 minutes to wash her face and change, which means that this seems a little bit long, but okay. This is my favorite. She meditates, clear her mind. That's great. That's okay. She works out, which is important. Later on, she talks about, uh, she, she maps out her salad. I'm not sure if this is the same salad every day or it just happened to be that day. And then there's some other words that she wants to live by, right? Um, I can bullshit immediately. I am not impulsive. I do not react. What? How do you not react as a human being? <laughs> All about business. I show no excitement. What? Um, I speak rarely when I do crisp and concise. So, again, I like people who have some plan and some direction, but... Um, Jack, this is a little extreme. This is extreme. And my first thought was all the times that I tried to organize my life better and I made a list. <laughs> it usually began with working out in the morning, but uh, it, it never happened, right? Uh, but, you know, some of her, her comments there, you know, that she's never impulsive, but she gives immediate like, feedback right away. Uh, they're, they're, they're inconsistent with themselves. Right. And you're never impulsive. You're on trial for fraud. Maybe... Uh... Right. You don't yeah, want to say, a, well, I planned the whole thing out, right? Yeah, exactly. Katie, uh, do you have a list like this that we could look at? Um, I have a, I have something called a five minute daily journal and it does consist of a few lists that I, I write in every morning, okay. but I, I will say I've never noted, uh, where, uh, what was it? Change my clothes and wash my face. That's never really been a part of the list. Okay. <laughs> it's 15 well, minutes though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Apparently it does. According so to what's the, 
Joe, what's the mustache routine? Is that do you write down the mustache maintenance routine, or is that just like on the fly? No, I don't. And Rich, actually, you might be getting your wish. Uh, David Hochberg of WGN Radio has brought it up to the Salvation Army Day where we try to raise money. Yes. Last year, we cut my hair and raised $180,000. Now he wants wow. the mustache gone. So it sounds like the people have spoken. Um, I'll have to return to my baby face, which I wash in between no, 7 a.m. So. to 7, 17 a.m. <laughs> Uh, we like what we like porno Joe. We what we love porno Joe. That's I. I can we just clip that? Can we clip that and, and keep that at the headline? That was that was perfect. We love porno Joe. So uh, probably the other best news aside from me possibly losing my mustache is a new show is hitting ABC on January fourth called Judge Steve Harvey. Rich, we should try to get him on as a guest. Aren't there mustaches? Aren't there? There's two things here. First of all, doesn't Steve Harvey have enough to do already? He has like 27 shows. And number two, why does he have to take a judge show? Leave the judge show for the judges. Like Steve Harvey, I love him on Feud. I love the Steve Harvey show. Leave that. There's so like there's a lot of judge shows, but leave that work to the judges. You're not a judge. He says in the release that he's going to be, you know, uh, d- discussing. Um, Disputes among everything, uh, small claims to big disputes and everything in between. How about the judges? Did you watch the advance reel, though? It is hilarious. Yeah. It is going to be so funny. I got two words for you. Judge Judy. Judge Judy needs work. You know, Judge Wapner. Where's Wapner? Wapner died like 20 years ago, didn't he? He was like 100 years old when the people's (laughs) court started. Leave the judges. Leave the judge shows to the judges is what I say, Jack, Katie. Yeah, this is going to be like these few people's guilty pleasure, but I can't imagine too many people watching this. Like, I, I don't, I don't know. I would never watch this. I think it's ridiculous. But I don't know. Yeah, I, think I, I want to get him on one of my panels for arbitration. I think it's be exciting. <laughs> He's got his own brand of wisdom and common sense, and if he brings what he brings to uh, the uh, you know uh, family feud to this, I think it'll be a, a huge success. Well, everyone yeah. except for me and Tina are probably too young to remember the original family feud. Richard and the Dawson, greatest right? Richard, Richard Dawson. Dawson. Mm-hmm. Speaking of sexual harassment, I mean, he, yeah, he was sl- the epitome. He would have canceled the first time he kissed a contestant on the lips. He oh, my Katie gosh. And Joe, he would kiss every female contestant on the lips, like every time he went down the row. It was cringy, but that was that was Richard Dawson. People knew what they were getting into going to that. So there I mean, you go. exactly. <laughs> Uh, I, now that you say that, it sparks a Family Guy clip in my in my memory about making fun of that situation. Haven't there also been like eight different hosts of Family Feud? How many uh, can you name? You got Louis Anderson. Yeah. You got Richard uh, Karn. The guy from improvement. the guy from Seinfeld. Yeah, you got that guy, uh, and then you had Louis Anderson. Oh, I said Louis Anderson. The guy from um, Home Improvement. Yeah, yeah Richard Karn. Uh, yeah, and the guy from Seinfeld. Uh, yeah, I. I have his bobblehead back there. Oh, duh. no, <laughs> Jay Peterman's his character. Jay Peterman. Believe- yeah, Jay Peterman. Exactly. I can't believe I'm blanking yeah, on that. Right. All right. Well, as soon as Legal Faceoff finds its own way on ABC or NBC or CBS, we'll we'll wait for the for the phone to ring on that. Until then, big thanks to Katie and Jack for joining us on the Legal Grab Bag. All of our other guests on this edition of the Legal Faceoff podcast for Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. I'm Joe Brand. Thanks again for listening. This is the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio. 
It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.